This is a Romy cast. Welcome to another episode of The Walrus Was Paul, a series of podcasts hosted by me, Paul Romanuk. Join me and let's take a stroll along the cast iron shore and peel off the layers of the glass onion with another great musical guest as we discuss their favorite Beatles or Beatles solo album. My guest on this episode is multi-instrumentalist, producer, crack session guy, and one of the busiest and most respected players on the Canadian music scene, Tim Bobaconti. Tim is going to be talking about the 1970 John Lennon Plastic Ono Band live album, Live Peace in Toronto. So where do I start with Tim? Uh, I first ran across his name on album credits when he was working with singer-songwriter Ron Sexsmith. Uh, He played with and toured with Ron for many years. He has also toured and recorded with Burton Cummings, Randy Bachman, Kim Stockwood, The Satellites. Uh, You'll find his name if you're a credit nerd like I am. I like to go through them. Uh, He's played with the Bare Naked Ladies. He has played with so many people. And he is a working musician. He's a regular performer on the Toronto bar and club music scene. Now, the best place to check out where Tim is playing if you're in the Toronto area or if you're thinking of dropping to the city for a visit and wanted to check out some local music, uh, just go to his Instagram feed, at Tim Bovacondi. Bovacondi is spelled B-O-V-A-C-O-N-T-I. That's at Tim Bovacondi. Uh, Tim is also a producer, and you can check out what he's up to as a producer or maybe get in touch with him if you're in a band that you'd like him to consider producing. Uh, does it out of his own studio, Tim's Garage. And he has an Instagram channel for that venture as well. It is at Tim's Garage Recording, at Tim's Garage Recording. Uh, For those of you listening in the UK, it is, of course, at Tim's Garage Recording. Tim's Garage as opposed to Garage. Uh, Tim will have a new album of solo material out later in 2023. It will be called Again. The website for this podcast is romycast.com, that is R-O-M-Y-C-A-S-T dot com, and if you head there, you can find each and every episode that we have done so far in this podcast series. This is the ninth episode of Series 3. You can find all of the other episodes from Series 1 and Series 2 at the website or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. Tim, it is great to see you again. Been too long. Uh, Thanks again for taking the time to talk to me about the Beatles and tell me, what have you been up to? 
Uh, well, loaded question. Well, <laughs> pockets of live work uh, since uh, things open up again with uh, Bachman Cummings and, all, and with Burton Cummings solo. Uh, I'm in the backup band for both of those entities. And, uh, and also I've recorded my own album, which is going to come out pretty soon. Um, in my home studio where I played everything on it because I didn't want anyone to come by. <laughs> and I've been sitting on it for a year. I've just been busy. But so that and playing some of my own live gigs in Toronto. And uh, that's pretty much it. And I'm going to be touring with Burton again in May and, and in the fall as well, quite extensively. Well, what is it like uh, when you, you're playing with a guy? Uh, we were talking before we were on air uh, about about Burton Cummings and, of course, Randy Bachman and Bachman Turner Overdrive, all bands that kind of loom in what was our childhood. Uh, are, any pinch me moments or are you too much of a pro for that? Well, I, I can't say that I never got nervous on the gig because the the parts that I'm playing are so iconic. So, you know, for instance, the first gig I did, I just remember like, I'm like eight feet from Burton and I just met him before hitting the stage. We had no rehearsal. Oh, wow. I just had to learn. This. I had a live show and I just kind of learned all, all my parts at home and then went to the gig in Edmonton. And it was a, the first one was, was like a corporate gig in a tent. And I remember looking over and Burton launched into the, these eyes, the piano. Dun, dun, ka, mm -hmm. ka, 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 and I had to do the little chip, you know, the little, and I'm just thinking, Please play the right chords, Tim. Don't screw that up. Come on. <laughs> Everyone will know. You know, it was yeah. like that. So there, the, I, I put that pressure on myself, probably undue pressure. But it's, 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 you know, moved on now. But for years, I would just, certain songs, I would just be like, wow, I, I've listened to that so much when I was a kid. And don't muff it up, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so so do, just to, uh, to, to pull that thread a little bit more, when you're doing what is a, an iconic guitar part or solo from one of those Guess Who songs or BTO songs, uh, for example, do you try to replicate it exactly or do you freelance a little bit at this stage? Well, with solos, um, I basically improvise because the solos, you have the freedom to, as long as you play something, you know, in the genre, in the key, as something that rocks. Uh, um, so I'll challenge myself to play differently each time uh, if I'm given a solo. But it, and, it, and Burton it, and Randy are all right with that. Yeah, well, it, like when Randy's there, um, that we Michael Zweig, my, my my friend, who's the other guitarist, we 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 don't play as obvious men, obviously as many solos because Randy's the guy. Yeah, but he, um, actually, in the last run we did this past summer. Um, he Randy was really generous giving out solos. Uh, so, and and I, I improvise and and uh, I like the challenge of like almost painting myself into a corner. Like how you okay? Where are you? How are you going to get out of this now? To, you know what I mean? Playing something a little different and then getting back uh, it keeps me on my toes. Uh, so today, uh, you chose as your album to talk about, and uh, this one threw me for a loop. I, and I, I never cease to be surprised by some of the choices that my guests make, and it, they're all good. You chose uh, John Lennon, Plastic Ono Band's 1969 release, Live Peace in Toronto. What made you choose this? Well, it was available, and also <laughs> um, being from Toronto, the historic history behind it um, and I always find it intriguing where John's head was at when he made that performance happen in Toronto and and basically went back to England and had, had made up his mind that he was leaving the Beatles and there's just a certain energy and it's a bit of punk rock energy that I, I enjoy too that's very loose that the band obviously hadn't rehearsed except for on the plane on the way over and there's just a, a rawness to it 
you know, especially side one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll get to side two. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but what about, uh, do you have a memory, though, of, uh, of buying the album or getting it when it was new? What's your memory well, there? Well, when it was new, I was, I was, it came out in, what, 1970 or something? Yeah, early 70s. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I was only five. I was a kid. But I, when I, basically, I'm a completist with my uh, record collecting with artists that I love and so at a certain point, it would probably would have been in the early 80s or something, I, I would have grabbed that album. Or maybe earlier, like late 70s or something. I have similar. Uh, yeah. You know, I've, I've come to all the Beatles solo and stuff like that. I'm a Beatles nerd. Yeah. Um, you and- read the books, you look at the discography and you go... I don't have that one. Yes. So yeah. you, you got to get it, you know? It's and, a- and it was, I recall it being hard to get for a number of years um, on vinyl anyway. Like it wasn't something, even Sam the Record Man, you know, which is a huge record store and probably the biggest one in Canada at the time on Young Street in Toronto. And uh, I can remember going in there and they didn't even have it. Um, so it, it wasn't widely available. And then when I heard it, it was, you know, hey, we'll, we'll get into that. <laughs> <laughs> Did you get the one with the calendar in it? No. I no. have the calendar, but I got it somewhere. I didn't buy an original copy with the calendar inside. It's the 1970 calendar with John, stuff from John's books mm-hmm. and photographs and stuff from Yoko's grapefruit book. I have that. My my nerd fest there is uh, I don't have it on vinyl, but I got all of John Lennon's albums. They they used to do these. I don't know if they still do because of the the waning popularity of CDs. But in Japan, they did what were called mini LPs, and they were exact. It was as though you'd taken a vinyl LP, put it in a machine, and shrunk it uh, to be the size of a CD. Uh, but the, they were exact replicas of the covers and the art, right down to if there were stickers and posters included, right. they were in there. Uh, and, I love the Japanese. Oh, yeah. yeah. And, and it's like just meticulous work uh, and uh, meticulous printing and the whole bit. So anyway, long story short, I have Live Peace in Toronto in the Japanese vinyl mini CD, mini LP format, and it contained the 13-month calendar for Oh my God, that tiny little print. Yeah, yeah. It's it's it's, what, it's really weird. One time I was in Tokyo playing with Ron Sexsmith, and I, you'll love this. I'm walking down the street, and on the, on the telephone pole, there's a sign, and it just says, Beatles sale, and with an arrow to this building. And I went up, and it was the fourth floor, and you open the ele- come, come off the elevator, and it was a huge floor of just Beatles stuff, records, books, I was in heaven. Well, did you buy some stuff? I spent my per diems. Uh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, it was one of those days. All right. Well, let's go into the context of this album, and, and it's an interesting one. Um, so it's August of 1969, and the Beatles are wrapping up work on Abbey Road, the final album that they would record together. Uh, the final mixdown session and uh, the determination of the final running order was held on August the 20th, 1969. It was the final time that all four Beatles were together inside the recording studio where uh, they'd, you know, of course, change the face of popular music. That was the day. They were all there for this important uh, mixdown session. Final editing of Abbey Road takes place on August 25th, three days after the Beatles' final photo session at John Lennon and Yoko Ono's recently purchased estate at Nurse Park. The Beatles' mythology is that they knew that Abbey Road was it. I'm using air quotes around it. And they wanted to go out on an artistic high. Uh, But a piece of information 
uncovered by Beatles historian Mark Lewison in 2019 challenges, in fact, must change that mythology. Now, in case you weren't aware of that, dear listener, so it was September the 8th. 1969, and there was a meeting at Apple HQ. So, just in context, they've done the final mix down. Abbey Road's ready to go. It's in the queue to be released. They get together for a meeting. Uh, Ringo is in hospital for tests. Lennon McCartney and Starr are supposed to be at the meeting. Star can't make it. Harrison is there. John Lennon has a portable tape recorder. We know this because that's where the recording of the meeting was done you hear him say on the recording Ringo you can't be here but this is so that you can hear what we're discussing so you've got Lennon McCartney Harrison at Apple and a tape recorder what they talk about is a plan to record another album and perhaps even a single for release in Christmas of 1969 so like the old days there is also talk that on future albums each of John Paul and George should have four songs each and two for Ringo if he wants them John Lennon on the tape also references the Lennon McCartney myth indicating that authorship of their songs should in future be individually credited which they weren't when they were in the Beatles So that meeting is on September the 8th, 1969. Three days later, just three days, John gets a phone call, September 12th, 1969. A little background on what the call is for. The Toronto Rock and Roll Revival Festival is scheduled to take place at Varsity Stadium in downtown Toronto. It's still there. It's been refurbished a couple times, but it's still right in downtown Toronto. It's part of the University of Toronto campus. They're going to have this show there on September the 13th, 1969. As it was, the concert was going to showcase some of John Lennon's early rock and roll musical heroes. Bo Diddley, Jerry Lee Lewis, Chuck Berry, Little Richard. The Doors and Alice Cooper were also a Amongst the other acts, the doors were the headliners and were going to close. However, ticket sales were not that great. So Lennon gets this phone call at Apple. And I'll pick up the story here with a guy named Kim Fowley, who was the MC at the Rock and Roll Revival show. He says this, We had a problem. We'd only sold 2,000 tickets and no one was interested in coming to Canada from America via Detroit and other cities. Halfway through the week, I met with the promoters. John Brower, Ken Walker, and Thor Eaton. Thor Eaton of the uh, Eaton's department store fame. Uh, He financed the whole thing. It was my idea to bring John Lennon over and act as an MC to sell some tickets. So John Brower calls up Apple Records. John Lennon gets on the phone. So he actually gets Lennon on the phone and he heard the pitch. And he replied that he would rather join in and be a part of it and didn't require any money. But he did require film rights and recording rights. John Lennon was in the music business and he was in show business. Alan Klein showed up and filmmaker D.A. Penbacher, uh, he of uh, Bob Dylan fame, uh, showed up with the film unit and the whole thing was recorded and a gold album came out of it. 
Lennon picks it up. We got this phone call on a Friday night that there was a rock and roll revival show in Toronto with a 100,000 audience, perhaps inflated, uh, or whatever it was, and that Chuck was going to be there, and Jerry Lee and all the great rockers that were still living, and Bo Diddley, and supposedly the doors were the top of the bill. They were inviting us as king and queen to preside over it, not play. But I didn't hear that bit. I just said, give me time to get a band together, and we went the next morning. So that's kind of the background there. The Beatles had, at this point, little enthusiasm for performing live, uh, so that wasn't going to happen. So I guess the first call goes to George Harrison. He says, no thanks. So then Lennon gets in touch with Eric Clapton. He says he's in. Uh, His old buddy, Klaus Vorman, is in, and uh, a young drummer, Alan White, who we'll talk about a little bit more later. On the morning of the 13th of September, Vorman, White, Alan Klein, Mal Evans, good old Mal, uh, and Lennon's assistant, Anthony Fawcett, all convene at London Airport, now Heathrow, uh, but Lennon, Ono, and Clapton were nowhere to be seen. So it transpires that Lennon and Ono had elected to stay in bed, and Clapton was unaware of the definitive plans. So the guitarist, Clapton, gets a call from John Brower, the promoter, who says, Eric, you may not remember me, but I'm the promoter who lost 20,000 bucks in your Blind Faith show last month. (laughs) Please call John Lennon and tell him he must do this, or I will get in a plane, come to his house, and live with him because I will be ruined. (laughs) So so Brower's plea works, and Lennon reluctantly agrees to join Clapton. Uh, So they leave for Toronto on Air Canada Flight 124. Lennon, Ono, and Clapton up in first class. The rest are back in uh, steerage. They get to Toronto. The group is driven right to Varsity Stadium. They arrive at the backstage area at about 10 o'clock at night, uh, and they remain in their dressing room and practice, and then they go out, and they got on stage around midnight. So that is how we got to where we were. And John was sick backstage, apparently. I did hear that. Yes, there, there's he he uh, he admits it himself. He Nervous. he was well. There's that theory and, and drugs too. Yeah, they were pretty. Which uh, I have a quote from Lennon, which I can get to later. But he said uh, something along the lines of uh, them being on junk. Yeah, that was the year that him and Yoko dabbled in heroin. Yeah, well, they were all uh, they were all pretty. Eric, F- Eric up. Yeah, 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 they were all. So there's the, yeah, yeah, I think he was plenty nervous, but I also think he might have been throwing up uh, because he was. he needed something. He needed, he needed, to, he needed, I need a Ouch. fix because I'm going down. Yeah, yeah, yeah maybe, yeah. maybe. What are your thoughts on the album? Just in, before we start into it. Well, you know, uh, I might have mentioned it earlier, but it's kind of punk rock. It's sort of a DIY, um, no rehearsal, just, uh, we call it a throw and go. You know, if you're on a festival, a throw and go is when you don't get a sound check. You like you just walk out on stage. Someone throws your pedal board. You plug into the trainer amps. Did you notice at Varsity that um, Pete Trainer's company, Toronto company, all the backline was trainer amps. So Lennon was plugging into a trainer amp. Clapton, they probably had never seen them before. Oh. And they're great amps, they're, they're, especially those ones from that time. I didn't know that was yeah, a they're Canadian. All, amp. They're all trainer. Yeah, from Toronto. Oh, good. Yeah. You, you, ever, you must have played on one. Yeah, I, I have a friend on the on the island, Toronto Island where I grew up uh, had like one that's sort of like a Fender Twin-sized. Uh, sounded beautiful. Like, I remember how good it sounded. The reverb was beautiful. They're gorgeous amps, like the old ones especially. I think. Oh, 
okay. and they're reissuing them now. But anyway, that that was uh, something I noticed when I recently to sort of research for the, our conversation today. I, I watched the film Sweet Toronto, the old yep. document Penn and Baker uh, thing, and and I'm like, look at that! It's all trainer amps, big oh. cabinets with he- amp heads, and John goes over and. Turns it, dimes it for the feedback uh, on side two. Yep, yep, yep. All right, well, let's put this on then. And it is side one, cut one, blue suede shoes. What say you about this one? Well, you can tell they haven't rehearsed because John <laughs> starts without the band. Well, it's one full of the money. And the guitar, normally, like the, the second time they all get it, they lurch in, you know, it's so loose. But uh, it's John finding uh, a song that that he feels secure with like that you know he 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 can't screw it up that's my take on it it's like you know we're only going to do songs we've never played or we yep. played together or sorry i'm i'm losing it but we're only going to do songs we know because we've never played together before or something he says right yeah yeah the the, the quote is hello and good evening yeah. uh okay we're just going to do numbers that we know you know because we've never played together before yeah, yeah. except on the plane on the way over for the they apparently rehearsed, you know, in the back with the, with their guitars without amps. Just imagine trying to hear that. Yeah. <laughs> so, yep. So that, I think that's why he would have chosen uh, something like Blue Suede Shoes. You know, it, it could have been any number of other songs. It, slow Down or, you know, some, some of those three-chord Beatle uh, covers, you know. Okay, we're just going to do numbers that we know, you know, because we've never played together before. Well, it's a one for the money, two for the show, three to get ready now. Go get go, don't step on that switch. Well, you can do anything on behalf of them switch. You can knock me down, tread on my face, find my name all over the place. They, they opened the album with three tracks that John had been playing since the Cavern and the Hamburg Day. So you, you got Blue Suede Shoes, which is the, the Carl Perkins rockabilly classic. Uh, Money, which was originally recorded by Barrett Strong in 1959. And of course, this spectacular closing track on the Beatles' second album with the Beatles. Uh, and then Dizzy Miss Lizzie, uh, which had been, again, part of the Beatles' live repertoire since their early days. Um Exactly, exactly. So so uh, they come on there with the, what is it John says, uh, we didn't know what to play, we'd never played together before, and on the airplane, as you were mentioning, we were running through these oldies with electric guitars, so you couldn't hear, saying, are we doing the Elvis version of Blue Suede Shoes or the Carl Perkins with the different break at the beginning, uh, to Jing Jing instead of duh, whatever, this is Lennon recalling it. Uh, and then Alan White, the drummer, says, I remember John being really really adamant that we were going to play the Carl Perkins version of Blue Suede Shoes because it had an extra beat in it and he was really worried somebody was going to make a mistake. We eventually got it right and that was my first introduction to working with him, going through the songs on the back of an aircraft. 
So uh, you've done, you alluded to it, uh, a ton of playing like that where, so, which is why I thought this was a cool pick for you to do Throw this. Throw and go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just, you know, so I guess you, you would have a bit of empathy of spectacular musicians and players, though they, they were, uh, Klaus and, and Eric and, and John Lennon and Alan White, uh, you know, you, you do have to practice a bit, don't oh, you? Oh, yeah. Well, if you look at the film, even um, you, throughout the film, you can see Clapton looking across at John, kind of maybe a bit uneasily, like just like, where are we going with this song? Like, just sort of just, you know, he, he's not like totally free. He's sort of going, uh, I got to really pay attention to what John's throwing down because this could go, it could be a total train wreck. <laughs> you know, you get that feeling like I, that, that interplay, like he just, he's like warily glancing over at Lennon, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and of course you wouldn't have to do that if you'd rehearsed five or 10 no, times together. Especially songs like this uh, that they're playing on, um, you know, off the top of the show, mm-hmm. but they're, they're being very careful. Mm-hmm. And, and then on the album, uh, on the, you hear, there's about a, a, a minute and a half. So he, they get introduced. Kim Fowley's the MC, you know, and he introduces them. And then you hear them... You know, Tuning up. For, for, it's, about, <laughs> I t- it's about a minute and a half before they start. That's so 60s. Like, they didn't have... Uh, what's the word? Strobosco- stroboscopic tuners. Like they, now we have tuners that, that you know you plug into them and you can silently tune. In fact, I'll quite often if if a guitar goes out of tune, most of mine are pretty good at staying in tune. But uh, if I'm playing at a gig, my own gig, for instance, I can keep singing and I can mute my sig- my guitar sound and tune while I'm singing. I can glance down at my feet and tune wow. and keep singing because it's so easy so and so accurate and, and, you know, it's all LED stuff. They didn't have that back then. So a lot of bands would do that, you know. I've, I've heard birds recordings where they're just, like, imagine tuning a 12-string Rickenbacker in front of the crowd. Why didn't you do it backstage? <laughs> like with a piano or something. I don't know. Like bands would just do that. They'd saunter on stage and, uh, you know, just wing it. There, there's a great photo of uh, from the um, the Beatles' last performance at Candlestick Park, and uh, of course they they were on a stage in the middle of the baseball field, and and uh, you know not the great setup particularly, uh, and their guitars, the the ones they're not using, uh, are just literally in a pile. Yeah, they're just strewn about. At the bottom of the stage, at the back. Yeah. And it's, it's somebody took a picture of this and is, you know, no racks. Uh, you know, I don't know if Mal tuned the guitars for them or not, but it's just a pile of them. It's sitting. a pile of tools. <laughs> it's just like hammers and uh, wrenches and things, you yeah. know, just throw it down. I know, it's crazy. Uh, Alan White, the drummer, has this recollection. I remember walking out into the middle of the stage and there was a drum riser there and I went and sat on a stool. I had no drums, and I was going, excuse me, guys, there's no drums here. John and Eric were tuning their guitars and doing all that kind of stuff, and then finally, a whole bunch of guys came out of nowhere with one drum each, and they put a drum kit together in two minutes, thrust a pair of sticks into my hand, and then I heard John go, one, two, three, oh four, and that was it. Crazy. That's, a, that's, a, that's the ultimate throw and go. <laughs> throw the kit down. Plug in and go. Anything uh, jump to mind? You must have done dozens of those. Oh, lots. You know, where, you, where, where you, you're the opening act and, and maybe you don't have your own amp. And uh, I remember playing with Kim Stockwood one time. It was a festival in Newfoundland. And, and the first song, you know, uh, I, I, I kick on my overdrive to play this, some lead part, and, and I smell smoke, you know. <laughs> 
and there's like smoke coming out of the back of the amp. And I'm like, oh, great. So we stop. And luckily, like the, well, we were opening for somebody. And they let the other guitarist was a nice guy. Just plug into my thing, Tim. Like there's a, you know, right off the top, it kind of throws you off a little, but you just, you just have to go, you know? <laughs> uh, let's talk a bit about the band. Um, so you got Lennon on guitar and vocals, uh, Eric Clapton. So here's where Eric was in his life at this point. He'd finished with Cream. They released Goodbye Cream in February of 69, so earlier that year. Uh, and he'd done an album and a tour with the very short-lived supergroup Blind Faith. Uh, great single album if uh, if you ever want to give it a listen. Uh, they just finished their one and only tour on August 24th, and one of those dates was in Toronto at Varsity Stadium, July 18th, 1969. Um so not very long. So it's, it's what, August 24th, they finish up their tour and they finished it in Hawaii. So then he travels back to the UK. Lennon calls him up on September the 12th to come and play in this gig. So only 19 days after yeah. he's gotten off the road. Back after at Varsity tour. Stadium. Back at beautiful Varsity Stadium. <laughs> yeah. uh, Klaus Vorman is the bass player and a pal of Lennon's from the Hamburg days and uh, famously, of course, designed the Beatles Revolver album cover. Yeah. And a great bass player. Yeah, I mean, musically, uh, he played with Lennon on most of his solo albums. He was in Manfred Mann. At, well. Exactly. He had just finished playing with the group Manfred Mann, which had split earlier that year. Uh, a fine group in its own right. Alan White is interesting. He's the drummer. A uh, 20-year-old kid at this point. He's a session musician in London, obviously highly thought of. Lennon saw him play in a club with a band that was called Griffin. Uh, and White would go on to play on Instant Karma. He played on Imagine, All Things Must Pass. And then he famously, he joined Yes, the prog rock band, in 1972. And he played off and on with that band right up until his death in 2022. So we just lost him not that long ago. I met him uh, once in London. I was playing with Ron Sexsmith at the Union Chapel. It's a big church venue. And... Uh, we finished the show and this uh, Japanese guy comes up to me and says, hi, I'm Yes's tour manager and I'm here with Alan White. And they were they had been sitting in, right in front of me in the front row, but I didn't know it was wow. him. And me, like being the Beatle head that I am, and, and I'm not so much into Yes. <laughs> I was never a prog rock guy. I appreciate the, what, the musicianship, et cetera. But, but the first thing out of my mouth when I met Alan White is like, you played with John Lennon in my hometown. That's what I said to him. It's like... Okay, and, and and I go, yeah, I'm from Toronto, and he was very nice. So I brought him backstage to meet everybody. He's, wow! So yeah, I got to meet him. It was pretty cool. Did he, he have any recollections that you can recall about the Toronto show? Or you know, by the time we got backstage, it was just a big crowd of people. So it was just pleasantries after that. But I, but I did get to say, you know. You played with John, yeah. and he was like, "Oh yeah, yeah." You know, wow, what a story! What he's hey, a nice guy. Just imagine, twenty-year-old guy, and you get a you get. And the the famous story is John Lennon himself called him, uh, and he did the old. You, know, the, you hear about this? He's going, yeah. You know, yeah, he thought it was a crank yeah, call. F off, keep, quit jerking me around, bye. And and Lennon had to call back a second time. And no, no, it, it is this is John Lennon. And then he's on a plane, and uh, and boom, there you go. One of my favorite rock and roll moments on film is uh, you know the Instant Karma TV appearance that John did. Yep. And Alan White's on drums, and there's two versions of it, and I I can't remember which one it is, but there's a camera shot from behind Alan White's head, like he's at the kit, and when when he does 
those amazing fills, like in the verses of Instant Karma. You see John, he's at the piano, and he's just like so elated. He's looking at cross and just going, yeah. Like, he, the, the, like I'm thinking, the, how cool would that be to be Alan White sitting at the drums and John Lennon is, is just applauding your work like that. It's, it was, yeah. it's so cool. Yeah, that's a great story. And, and uh, there were two versions. Uh, the, the video is from, or the, the film of that is from their appearance on Top of the Pops. Top of the Pops, yeah. And uh, the, the, the one you see most often is Yoko is uh, blindfolded. Uh, is she knitting or something? Yeah, she's and she's blindfolded bizarrely with a, uh, yes. uh, a, a feminine hygiene pad yeah. uh, around her eyes, and she's knitting. Maybe that's where John got the inspiration for the Troubadour Club with Harry <laughs> Nilsson wearing a Tampax on his head. Oh, who knows? We anyway. may never know. But yeah, that's a great uh, that's a great observation about Alan White. Um, so then we go to cut two on side one, and it's another old favorite, a tried and true Beatles track, Money. Was ripped into that. He, I love his vo- vocal on the. Would it be sixty three? I guess the original Beatle recording of that for with the Beatles. Yeah, yeah with the Beatles, and uh, yeah, and he just he digs into it. it. It's like Eric knows they both know their guitar parts on that one uh, at the Toronto show. Like they're do 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 do. It's pretty together, and uh, yeah, I just love the. It's primal. Is his his uh, he's really given her his from his throat, and, and he always sang the hell out of that. I thought so. Yeah, I mean his his performance of it uh, with. The, I mean the that might be one of the great Beatle vocal performances of all time because you have when you you know to put it in context of the time you've got what would go on to be two of the greatest rock and roll voices of the era Lennon and McCartney and they both sing on that track and they're both just giving her yeah and nobody in they didn't rehearse the backup vocals on the plane apparently because nobody does the that's what I want that's you know right. like the, it's just all John which is fine but it's, but it's interesting that nobody else was Eric Clapton sings a little bit at the show, like on um, uh, Give Peace a Chance. He's, you can hear him going on the mic on the choruses. But that's about it, I think. Um, John says this, uh, I hadn't got the words to any of the songs. I knew Dizzy Miss Lizzie, Blue Suede Shoes, and a couple I hadn't done since the cavern, and that's all we could do. Uh, Klaus Vorman's recollection. John says, uh, Klaus, I want to put a band together called the Plastic Ono Band. Do you want to play on the bass? Uh, I didn't know Yoko, and I had no idea what they're going to do. Uh, were they going to be in underpants on stage? What were they going to do? I had no idea. Maybe no pants at all. And I said, uh, he said, no, no, no. I want you to to have a band, and it's it's going to tour and record. Eric has already said yes, Clapton, and now I'm asking you. So I said, yeah, okay, let's do it. Who's the drummer? No idea. No drummer yet. And then he called Alan White. So that's where you pick up that story. Alan White, just to, to continue on that, uh, he says, uh, I got the call. I said, absolutely. The limo came in the morning, and there I was. In 
in the VIP lounge at London Airport, and there was John and Yoko and Klaus Vorman, and I sat down and introduced myself, and John said, oh, I forgot to tell you, Eric Clapton's playing, and he walked out of the bathroom right then, and I went, oh my God, this is incredible, I was only 20. Uh, God rest his soul. Yeah, yeah, you can just imagine. Um, now, I'll just ask you this. You're a veteran of, of playing live, right? So, so for Lennon and Clapton, those old songs were the songs they gravitated to because they were fun to play and they knew them. With your live shows, the throw and goes, or when, when you're just playing around Toronto or wherever, yeah. and what are the songs that, you, what, what's your Dizzy Miss Lizzie and Money, okay, what's the equivalent? Okay, the, the, uh, sometimes I play with my friend Fergus Hambleton, you, you might have heard of him, he, he's, he um, is the uh, lead singer and founding member of the Satellites, the Canadian yes, reggae yeah. band, and also uh, in the early 70s, Fergus had... Uh, had some albums out on Capitol, some kind of folk rock things, really nice records. And when we play together, sometimes we'll we'll be look at each other. What should we open with? If we if it's a bar, like a pickup band kind of gig or whatever, or a dance, or and we call it the lifeboat. It's the save the song that will save you, like get the night started. Because maybe you're with a bass player that doesn't know all the tunes or whatever it is, right? It's a, like a throw and go or whatever. So we'll go the lifeboat. And the, for us, the lifeboat is, uh, it's a Gene Clark song, uh, I'll Feel a Whole Lot Better by the, the Birds recorded. And Tom Petty did a version of it as well. That's we call the lifeboat. So that's, that's kind of a, because we know it so well and the chords are pretty simple. Oh, there's a few changes, but... And that's what it is. It's a it's a comfort zone. It's like home row on the keyboard. You know, you you can't really screw it up. <laughs> uh, Eric Clapton recalls. He says it was really refreshing to do these songs because they are very simple and uncomplicated. John and I really love that music. That's the kind of music that turned John on initially, and it's the same for me. In fact, I could go on playing Money and Dizzy Miss Lizzie for the rest of my life. So Clapton loves that kind of stuff. Uh, and then Lennon says, the buzz was incredible. I never felt so good in my life. Everybody with us uh, was leaping up and down and doing the peace sign because they knew most of the numbers anyway. When we did Money and Dizzy, I just made up the words as I went along. <laughs> I know, you can hear it. He always did that, though. He he would screw up his own words all the time. How many performances of Help have you seen uh, on uh, you know where he's like, uh, Paul and George are doing the correct backing vocal? when I was whatever like and John singing the wrong verse all the time <laughs> uh, did it help you to to be able to because uh, I did the same thing I went on and I watched the film yeah. after I'd listened to the back to the album a couple of times I, I thought it gave you a bit of a better idea of the context of the whole absolutely. thing absolutely yeah um, so we go on to the third track on side one and it is the aforementioned Dizzy Miss Lizzie Clapton plays the the lead figure, and uh, he actually muffs it a few times. But, <laughs> um, but it's uh, you know it's just another one that the, that the Beatles would have recorded around 1965, and Lennon just rips it on the on the studio version. And he does a great job in, at the live piece in Toronto, I think. You know. <laughs> Thank you. 
It had been part of the Beatles' live repertoire since their earliest days, uh, originally released as a single by Larry Williams. But Lennon, recalling what you were saying, he says, after money, <clears throat> there was a stop. And I turned to Eric and said, what's next? And he just shrugged. <laughs> Isn't that your job, John? Aren't you the band leader? <laughs> so I screamed, come on. And I started into something else, which was Dizzy Miss Lizzie. Right. And I, and, um, I also want to mention that I love uh, Lennon's chunky rhythm guitar on Dizzy Miss Lizzie and it's something that he used a lot he used it when they play the Beatles recorded Larry Williams Bad Boy as well if I may demonstrate sure sure this, my my old guitar is going to get a, a workout here I love this I don't have a pick so wish me luck but uh. so like and Len, that's the Eric part and then Lennon was going yeah so it's like the bass player part which is kind of cool. And, and when they did Bad Boy, it was like, the bad little kid moved in, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, yeah. He's like throwing the bass line in there with his pinky. It's very cool. Oh, that is cool. My God, I'm, I wish, uh, so you played that guitar a bit. Mo Berg played it a bit. Um, I'll never wash my hands. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I just wish I could pick up some of the DNA talent off of that from the people who've demonstrated things on it. But uh, Just never clean the strings. You'd no, be okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Um, now, although it wasn't intended for the Help LP, the, this song, the Beatles liked their version of Dizzy Miss Lizzie. They liked the Lennon vocal and everything, so they, they stuck it on there and I always found it amusing that uh, they put it on the original sequencing of the original Help album not the North American one they put it after yesterday right to close the album out yeah maybe maybe they thought it was just a little too soft Paul's <laughs> beautiful time honored classic I don't know um, so just back to the getting there I love some of these old quotes uh, Klaus Vorman says uh the flight was over in no time, and then we're at the airport, uh, and there were these big limousines standing there picking us up, and it was all new to me. It was just incredible. When we hit the highway, in came all these great people on motorbikes, and then Mal Evans' recollection, uh, immediately we arrived at the stadium, and I began to feel the tremendous excitement of the old touring days. I don't know what it is, but whatever, whenever the Beatles used to get near the theater or stadium, you could feel the tension. And when the 20,000 audience in Toronto sensed that John Lennon was there, there was an incredible feeling of excitement in the air. Uh, and then Eric Clapton chimes in. John stood in the dressing room, which was admittedly rather tatty, beforehand saying, what am I doing here? I could have gone to Brighton. After all, it was a long way to go for just one concert. That's a lot of people's uh, sort of feeling before they take the stage. I know, uh, for instance, Burton Cummings, who I, uh, I mentioned that I played with him, um, I know he doesn't like to get to the venue until like 10 minutes before or 15 because he... I guess it's sitting around. He's not comfortable with that. And I remember when I would play with Ron Sexsmith, right before we'd go on, he'd always say something like, "Why do I put myself through this?" <laughs> you know, a lot of most performers are the same. You get the butterflies, and and I think, uh, but the, these people are are so good at their craft that they use that nervous energy once they get in front of the people, and and the, and and it's like a you know. Their battery power, or something. You know what I mean? Well, I'd be curious to know. Um, I mean, I used to, in my my other life. Uh, I was a, a sports broadcaster, hockey mostly, play by play, uh, and I would get to the rink 
two and a half or three hours before the game. Uh, so before my performance, if you will, calling play by play. And I'd go down to the backstage area outside the dressing rooms. Uh, the players were getting ready for their performance to go out and play the game. Most of them were there about the same amount of time, you know, two, two and a half hours beforehand. And they would be, some would stretch. Uh, it's a typical thing now where they'll get five of them in a magic circle and they'll kick a kick a soccer ball around or head the ball just at that. Uh, some guys like to work in their sticks, although they don't do that as much anymore because the sticks are all, you know, made of, you know, all preformed. Uh, but you still get some guys taping and, and doing work in their sticks. So some guys will sit and just have a coffee uh, and, and talk to teammates. So they all have a routine that they like to do. What's your pregame routine? Uh, well, it depends on the, on the gig. I, I like to um, eat something healthy. Like if it's a big show, you know, you don't want to eat right before the gig because you, you don't want to have an upset tummy up there, you know. Yeah. You got enough to worry about. And uh, just be, being um, focused and relaxed as, as much as, as possible. Like, But will you tune your instruments? Will you strum through a few chords? Like what, what about Sometimes that? I will do that, but um, generally the, we have a st- stage crew, so they'll, they'll tune it f- for me. But even so, sometimes I still like to go out. That's a, uh, Yeah, that's interesting. Like... Um, before the house lights come on, I'll st- even though I know it's tuned up, I want to go out and touch it and double check my tuning. I still do that sometimes, and just it's like saying hi to my guitar. Okay, it's mm-hmm. a comfort zone. Like, okay, it's gonna be cool. All right, you guys know each other. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> like it's like that. But the one time, um, one of the biggest shows I did with Ron Sexsmith, uh, which was I guess 2013, maybe 10 years ago now, uh, was the uh, he headlined at the Royal Albert Hall. And I'd, we'd been on tour for for a month, and so it wasn't like I was nervous about playing the music, but the, just the the sense of occasion. And my mom and my wife and my sister and, and my aunt had flown over, and my cousin, you know, and they were in the crowd, and, and I was just like, "Wow, this is big!" Like, you know, yeah. And I was wandering around backstage, like walking in a circle, and and right before we went on, it was myself and Jason Mercer, the bass player in Ron's band, and Nick Lowe was was hanging out because he's friends with Ron. So it was, there was this, this moment where it was just the three of us in the dressing room. Everyone else was in the hallway, I guess. And I'm just, I must have been pacing nervously. And, and I heard this voice, and it was Nick Lowe, and he, I'll never forget it. He said, he said, you know, it is a wonderful place to play. Go out there and enjoy it. And I went, yeah. That's what I got to do. <laughs> Hearing it from him, who is somebody who I really look up to, I'm a huge fan of his music, and, and it's such a kind thing to say because he obviously picked up on my nervous energy. And I was like, yeah, Nick Lowe just told me to chill the F out. So, so I did. I went out there. I, w- I was actually really, I, f- I felt more confident and relaxed because I listened to what he said. I, j- I needed to hear that because I was like, kind of like, holy shite, I'm playing the Royal Albert Hall. Yeah. Yeah, you know, uh, don't I mean, muff it up. That's incredible. <laughs> I've I've been there numerous times to see shows. It's a great uh, place, and it's it's just going as an audience member, which is all I've had the the pleasure to do, is incredible. I've seen Paul Weller there more times than I could count. Uh, saw the Coral play there. I uh, was there for Teenage Cancer Trust one time. Like a, wow. a, a bunch of shows, but just going in there and yeah. there's this sense of occasion and history. What's it like? Backstage, like, is it just a grubby old dressing room, or is no, there a, a sense of specialness? Well, it's all very clean, you know, white walls, and and there's a lot of um, sort of posters framed, like from old shows. And I remember seeing actually right backstage was uh, 
what was the the name of it? It was the 1963 concert that the Be- the Beatles did there. Uh, um, it's eluding me. It was like a multi band bill. They, they they had a poster of that, and then I went upstairs and they had these beautiful photographs of, of like Hendrix playing there in '69, like just like all the way up to the top of the building, like in these little foyers and, and hallways. I took picture. I, I brought my phone and I was just like snap, snap, snap. Because you know, the, just the, the history of the place. That is a great story, man. That's uh, what a place to play. I mean, yeah, yeah. You know, very be, lucky. It'd be up there with with Hollywood Bowl. Madison. Played there with Ron too. Oh, they, <laughs> and Madison Square Garden. Yeah, man, it's just going to say all, and Madison Square played Garden. Played all of those with Ron in two, 20 years ago. Um, we, we opened for Coldplay on uh, six weeks of their tour. The three weeks were um, when they were playing like half arenas. And big, huge auditorium club type places, and there was like a month or two off, and then we got the second itinerary, and I couldn't believe it. We played; it was two nights at the Hollywood Bowl, two nights at Red Rocks, Madison Square Garden, all these places, and and uh, what was then the uh, the Molson Amphitheater was was the, the second to last show, and the the end of the tour was Madison Square Garden, and we so we it was just incredible, like a. Um, you know, I've used my little tiny Fender Blues Junior amp on these huge stages. If I walk like six feet on either side of it, I couldn't hear my guitar anymore. So I had to stand right in front of it. Because with Ron, it was a small, tight knit, pretty quiet band. We never played loud. It was a very, you know, focused, smaller sound, um, you know, supporting his amazing songs. And, and uh, yeah, it was an experience. Like, uh, I'll never forget. Did you have a moment where you like like Lennon talks about here? Uh, where is this? Here, here's I'll, I'll tell you what Lennon's moment was. This is is recounted by Mal Evans. Um, so uh, bef- Kim Fowley goes out to introduce the Plastic Ono band, and he did a really great thing. He had all the lights in the stadium turned right down. This was a new thing back then, kids. And he asked everyone to strike a match, and it was really unbelievable to look out and see thousands of little flickering lights suddenly shining all over the huge arena when Lennon comes out. So he would have looked out and had a moment, I'm sure. Did you get one of those? Uh, well, I don't think we had lighters. We were the opening act, but it was, right. it was exciting like just to be there. You know, I was just like, holy shit, man, we're playing the Hollywood Bowl. Yeah. You know, and uh, after the first night, it was this incredible, there was an after party like right up behind the stage. and. And so many scenesters, like you just, it's L.A. and Coldplay's uh, this ascent in their ascendance. You know, they're just rocketing to, uh, up to the yep. toppermost of the poppermost or whatever, right? And so uh, that night, Ron and I met Brian Wilson. You know, I sang uh, "The Warmth of the Sun" with Brian Wilson in the Coldplay's dressing room because everyone was uncomfortable, and he was in one of his quiet Brian, like I'm not talking to anybody, vacant sort of vibes. And uh, the bass player from Coldplay, when I came in, he, he says, Tim, you, I, you must know some Beach Boy songs. And we'd been hanging out, so he knew I knew lots of tunes. He hands me this little Martin Parlor guitar, and uh, I, and I just started into the warmth of the sun, and I just looked at the floor, and my heart was going, boom, <sighs> And then and then Brian started singing in unison, like singing along. Was, oh my goodness! Unbelievable experience. Wow, that's that's big. That is big. That was nuts. Uh, so basically, they empty their tank for the old favorites. The first three that, yeah. they, that they okay. So that's done. We don't have an. <laughs> so to finish up side one, three originals, and they start off with uh, a run of uh, your blues, cold turkey, and then give peace a chance. So your blues. 
Yeah, well, I think that was another uh, lifeboat, as we said earlier, <laughs> because Eric had played that the year before on the Rock and Roll, uh, the Stones uh, Rock and Roll Circus with that band with Keith Richards on bass and yes. Mitch Mitchell on drums, you know that. And uh, so I think that was, and it's a blues, it's a, tw- you know, three chords. And uh, I think that was a, just an easy choice because he had played that with John. And, and uh, yeah, and actually they, they did a nice version of that with all those sort of runs. You know, the nice little double stops like Eric plays. And like it's like they knew it already. I think that's why they chose that for sure. Yes, I'm lonely. From the 68 uh, Beatles album, the White Album, of course, if you listen to this podcast, you probably know that. Uh, And the story there, uh, there was the band called The Dirty Mac, uh, which had Eric, John Lennon, uh, as well as uh, Keith Richards playing bass, uh, and Mitch Mitchell, who was the drummer from the Jimi Hendrix experience, and they did a version of your blues for the rock and roll circus and john says we did your blues because uh, i've done that with eric before it blew our minds and we did a number called cold turkey which we'd never done before and they dug it like mad uh i i think for me this would be my favorite track in the album your blues i think yeah, on this yeah. album it's the most together i think yeah because uh yeah they seem to know it <laughs> yeah <laughs> hey <laughs> yeah you know it, it rocks it definitely rocks. And John's voice, like, uh, like John was, um, maybe it was, well, he always had that urgency in his voice just from his life, what he went through with his family. Um, but, uh, like, there's such an honesty in his voice. And when he's screaming out those words, you believe him, right? And I, I, it's, there's just this rawness to it, to his, his, his uh, vocals on that. that yeah, it's, it, yeah, it's incredible. And Clapton, Clapton sounds, I think it's like he sounds pretty good with the solos. The yeah, well, it's, solos. It's, it's in his uh, wheelhouse, you know. He's playing, um, he's playing a, a black Les Paul through a trainer amp, and John's playing his Epiphone Casino that he used uh, on the rooftop. And yes. uh, and the, and so the, the sound of those two guitars is nice too. The hollow body Epiphone and Eric playing the the Les Paul with all those blues runs with that tone of his, you know, it's perfect. So they do your blues, and then they go out of that into uh, Cold Turkey. Now, the song was really new. Yeah, they hadn't recorded it yet. Like they, they had not. Yeah, and they. So I always think of it as like they kind of busked it in Toronto, like because the record is more tailored. Like there's a, it's like sort of a bass and drum thing, which they got Ringo on the recording, but it's Vorman on bass and Eric on guitar and John. And uh, it's more together in, in a sense. And in Toronto, because they didn't really know how to start it, John just starts strumming A minor to D, like if I may demonstrate. Sure. And, and okay, come on, join in, guys. Yeah. Whenever you're ready, you know. And so they don't even have the temperatures rising, you know that? Yeah. They haven't come up with that yet. Like, they haven't, they wrote that in the studio, obviously. It's a newest song that John wrote. Uh, we've never done this number before, so best of luck. 
called Cold Turkey. The Toronto version it lacks the the biting guitar yeah. that they come up with in the in the studio recording, uh, and then it was which, which we can get into, but it's it's completely marred by uh, the Yoko's wailing backing <laughs> vocals. Gonna live without those. Yeah, well, you know, it's not everybody's cup of tea. Yeah, that's for sure. No, no, it's 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 uh, we can talk about that in a second, but it's it's uh, yeah, it was so new. You hear them on the recording saying, you know, it's a brand new song or it's a newest song uh, and uh, Yoko holds up a sheet of paper yeah, with the lyrics. Yeah. And he still screws them up. He <laughs> he gets the verses wrong, like he, which is such a John thing to do. Uh, he's Like they're in the wrong order. He's he, I guess he can't see them. because yeah. He's not wearing his glasses. Uh, so I, he's, his eyesight is pretty, was pretty terrible. Does he not have the glasses on? Or maybe he does. I think he he does actually, doesn't he? And he uses apparently blind as a bat anyway, yeah. he, uh, even with the glasses. So, yeah. um, but what is it? Uh, yeah. So, j- in terms of, of um, uh, sort of timeline here, so this is September the 13th where they're doing this show. That the songs never, they're busking it, as you put it. It was recorded formally on September the 25th. So, yes, right not, b- after they got back to England. Right after. Uh, first sessions take place at Abbey Road, and it comes out as a single on October the 20th uh, in the US, October 24th in the UK. Same band as you for the studio recording except Alan White gets dusted and they bring in Ringo. Ringo yeah. Which is kind of harsh. Ah, well, it's Ringo. It is Ringo. No, that that's true. Um, and I didn't hear this. In the, one of the reports I read, it said, the crowd's response to the song was muted and afterwards Lennon demanded that the crowd, come on, wake up. Yeah, I, I, don't, <clears throat> I don't know if I caught that. But um, I think... Overall, like the, the crowd is sort of, well, they're expecting the Beatles or something, you know, the second coming of the Beatles, but they're clapping. I think overall the cr- crowd might not have been blown away by the performance. Like this, there, there are definitely moments after each song where it's not like shrieking like, ah, yeah, like you hear about the start of the show, for instance, you know, when they came out. It, it would have just, it must have just been a really, because it was a whole long day. Right, like if you watch the film, I mean, they had like Jerry Lee Lewis and uh, Bo Diddley, and all these guys played during the day, and then these guys don't even come on till midnight. Yeah, and the, the crowd's been smoking weed for nine hours and, <laughs> in the sun. You know, it's yeah. still warm out there, so yeah. so you, they're brain dead by that time. <laughs> yeah, you would. Um, what is Lennon? Maybe. Here, here's that, that that quote I was looking for earlier. Uh, this is John Lennon in an interview with uh, uh, Jan Wenner. Um, and he says, we were full of junk too. Uh, I just threw up for hours till I went on. I nearly threw up in cold turkey. 
Uh, I had a review in Rolling Stone about the film of it, which I haven't seen yet, and they were saying I was this and that, and I was throwing up nearly in the number. I could hardly sing any of them. I was full of shit. That's a John Lennon quote. So, and I think shit is a euphemism for yeah. you know heroin or yeah. Uh, he there looks. Were, he does look a, a tiny bit vacant. His eyes. Yeah, yeah, and he's thin as a rail too. Um, which is something I noticed when I saw the film. Uh, now, that would have been quite a moment had he barfed it up in the <laughs> yeah. middle of cold turkey. Yeah, totally. <laughs> it would have been appropriate somehow. Live, live puke in Toronto. But, <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, but but then, so a, a disastrous moment that I guess was averted, which leads me to something. Of, uh, I, I know when TV people sit around and talk, there's nothing funnier than television gone bad, live television gone bad. You got to have some music stories of shows gone bad. <laughs> um, that I've been involved in? Well, the one that first comes to mind is uh, when I was playing with Kim Stockwood, it was on the East Coast Music Awards. And it was in, uh, I think it was in Sydney, Nova Scotia. And they, for some reason, like, you know, you're in a hockey rink. It was in an arena. And they had us um, have our guitars around our necks off stage. So we're in the corner of the rink and it was freezing cold. And and then and then oh you're going up now and it's live TV so my guitar was cold and then I got under the hot lights and the, the strings I tuned it up quickly I played the Kim's the single like a, their song jerk it was called and I play their opening riff there's like a one or two string bends and then I go to the verse and play the chord and it's completely out of tune oh. Oh. I was like this is miserable and I'm just sh the rest of this song I just spent shaking the neck to try to make it sound in tune it was horrible um, well one time I was on TVO that, it wasn't really a bad thing but uh I used to go on TVO Kids sometimes and play, and they'd have my name, Tim, like in big, you know. And one time they said, Tim, can you come in and play? We have a skeleton staff, because it was right before the Christmas break. It's like their last day. And and I get in there, and uh, and the guys, the host is there, and just one camera person. And out of camera, there's a 2-4, and like magnums of wine. <laughs> and we just partied. And, and then my aunt happened to see it. I was I don't remember what I was playing on there. And you know, they have big blue letters, Tim, you know, like for the kids' show, right? And and my aunt was like, Were you guys drinking? <laughs> no. <laughs> I said, Yeah, a little bit. It was just kind of ludicrous. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good story. Uh, uh, so Cold Turkey, just to refresh your memory, it's it's released in the U.S. as a single. So they, they get it all recorded, comes out, uh, and this is the famous. It only peaks at number 30 in the U.S., uh, reaches number 14 in the U.K., so it's it's far from a number one. Uh, the, the relative lack of success disappoints Lennon. He's used to Beatle-level success. Um, although, uh, you know, I'm sure he, he can probably would be aware of the fact that it's not exactly an easy listening song, the, yeah. the the subject matter, so it would put off a lot of Beatles fans. So he looks for his medal. He looks for his MBE, uh, which he was uh, which he was awarded back when he was with the Beatles, and he sent it back. Uh, and the letter said, "I am returning this MBE in protest against Britain's involvement in the Nigeria Biafra thing, against our support of America in Vietnam, and against cold turkey slipping down the charts." With love, John and Bag. So there you go. Uh, so then we get to the last track on side one, uh, and it was John's first non-Beatles single, and it's the the what's now an anthem. Give peace a chance. What do you think of this version? 
Well, it's it's pretty t- um, throw and go. Yeah. Uh, because um, John confesses at the start of it that he doesn't, I don't remember all the in between bits or whatever uh, he says. This is what we came for, really. I love her! It's uh, give peace a chance, so sing along. Yeah, let's sing. Together. I've forgotten all those bits in between, but I know the chorus, so. I'm spy, I'm spy, fly fear. It's like a bu- it's a busking version for sure, yeah. But it it doesn't fall apart because he just it doesn't matter the length of the verses which were longer in the 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 single version um, recorded in the hotel. Um, as long as the, the band is listening, he just jumps on the choruses and they go with them. So that it holds together in that sense. And Eric Clapton sings a few harmonies. You can hear him on there. Uh, he introduces the song Lennon does with the words this is what we came for really Uh, and then yeah he confessed he couldn't remember the words and he largely ad-libbed them during the verses Um, but this song was a big hit it was um, number two in the UK charts 14 on Billboard in Canada it hit number eight on the RPM chart in August of 69 so just a few weeks before he played this show he's, he's, he's got a song Mal Evans recollection uh, finally came John's last number give peace a chance before he sang it John said this is what we came for really so just sing along and the audience did I think every one of the 20,000 people there must have joined in it was a wonderful sight because they all thrust their arms above Above their heads and swayed in time to yeah, you can the see music. it. Everyone's right into it. If I may mention, um, <clears throat> last year I did a show actually at Corner Hall, right next to Varsity Stadium, and it was called the Forgotten Festival. And it was uh, this guy Stephen Bull. He's a broadcaster. He he put together. Um, he asked me to be the musical director, and we and and it was uh, the anniversary of the 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 show at Varsity, and so he wanted to have. Like the Doors songs, Chicago. So we, I got, I hired a bunch of musicians, <clears throat> and I got Jerry Legere to do uh, the John Lennon songs, and he he killed it. He did. Uh, we did Dizzy Miss Lizzie. We didn't do all all the songs, but we did Dizzy Miss Lizzie and uh, um, definitely Cold Turkey and and Give Peace a Chance. And Jerry was just dug into it. And uh, he loves his John Lennon. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Really big fan. Wow, that's a great. Yeah, the, the Forgotten Festival. You should have been there. I know. How did I miss that? Uh, there may I, I, there's talk of us doing some stuff in theaters. Now there's a documentary about uh, about the concert that just came out. Um, but- it is funny that whole. It, I mean, I think it would be. It, it's largely forgotten anyway, but it would be completely forgotten if not for this John Lennon album. Yeah, I know. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's just sort of under the radar. There were so many important festivals that year, and it just kind of got. Um, swept under the carpet a little bit. Just, just a quick, uh, because I've never talked about this song in this podcast before, Give Peace a Chance. Uh, and, and again, if you're a listener to this podcast or you're a fan of the Beatles, you're probably aware of this, but uh, it was recorded largely in 
a hotel room in Montreal. Uh, it was on a four-track recorder, <clears throat> and they what happened is on the day of the recording, Lennon instructed Apple's press officer, Derek Taylor, to arrange for recording equipment to be brought into the hotel suite. So Taylor contacts a local studio owner, Andre Perry, who brought in four microphones and a four-track tape recorder. That is Andre Perry, who later opened the legendary studio, Le Studio, in Morin Heights, Quebec, where Rush, the police, the BG, Chicago, Bowie, April Wine, Cat Stevens, they all recorded there. Uh, studio was eventually closed in 2003. Uh, it was recorded in the hotel room, 1742, the Queen Elizabeth Hotel in Montreal, Canada, and they have the room decorated up now yeah, with, with photos the of the John event. and Yoko suite or whatever. Yeah, 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 yeah. I've never been there. I've, I, I was in Montreal more times than I could count for hockey, and I always wanted to go over and say, hey, can I have a look? I know, I'm I sure, know. I'm sure everybody well, One time that. I was in Cincinnati playing on tour with Ron Sexsmith, and, and uh in the hotel, it was this really old hotel. I forget what it was called. Uh, I go down the corridor, and there's a star on one of the doors. It's the Beatles suite. Oh. So that's where they stayed on the '66 tour. That was kind of interesting. Yeah. So we flip it over to uh, side number two, and and it's a couple of songs on there. Uh, Don't worry, Kyoko. Mummy's only looking for her hand in the snow, as well as John John. Let's hope for. Or peace. Uh, so we start off with Don't Worry, Kayoko. It was a song by Yoko that was recorded on October 3rd, 1969, so a few weeks after it's played here. Uh, and it, it goes out as the B-side to John Lennon's single, Cold Turkey. And then it comes out on her 1971 album, Fly. And now Yoko's going to do a thing all over you. Love this one? Uh, well, you know, here's the thing. Like, um, I think Yoko, like at this time, it was very freeform, and um, you know, it wasn't acceptable to most Beatle maniacs, let's say. And also, the, the the arc of the Beatle story, which we all, if you're a Beatle fan, like we are, you've read a million books about them, and it, and it gets a little depressing around the time of Let It Be, and or even before that, because. Because of the emergence of the, their partnerships, in a sense, like it's like you know that the old gang is going to break up. It's part. It's the arc of the story. So I think that's part of it. Like I, I've never thought Yoko broke up the band. I mean, John was looking for for an outlet. He was looking for a way out in his own way, yeah. subconsciously or not, you know. And and uh, so I think she gets a bad bad rap for that. Uh, whether or not this is uh, musical is up to the, the listener. I, per, for, for one, I, I don't really enjoy this, this part of Yokel's vocalization, but I will say that, that there's a few of her early 70s albums that I quite like that, that are, you know, re- proper melodic song content, you, yeah, you could say. 
with a lot of really great session musicians. Uh, there's one, uh, Approximately Infinite Universe, and then Feeling the Space. Like they're, Those are g- decent records, like some really good songs. And even the stuff she wrote on uh, uh, Double Fantasy, I didn't mind. Like there were some good songs. It's this At this time, she... It's it's she's doing her sort of um, shrieking bit, and if you look at uh, Heather McCartney and the Get Back thing, where where she goes on the microphone and John and Yoko are sitting there, and and she goes ah, ah and and John looks at Yoko, Yoko, she's doing you, <laughs> yeah, like it's kind of like it's so sim- simplistic and childlike or primal or whatever. So whether you want to listen to it is up to you, but it's not my thing. But I, having said that, I don't mind some of her her later work. And and I have a funny story. Like, my, my I have seven year old twins, and when they were about four, I, I had this uh, turntable that I would let them use with an old forty five collection in my basement. You know, and I put on Cold Turkey, the single, and and my son James flipped the side, and and it's yo, it's it's that this song, right? Yeah. And and uh, and he comes running up to me with this worried look, at Dada. There's something wrong with the music. Like it scared him. Like it, so, it just has it, it has a reaction. You know, people have their own reaction to it. But my kid, he it frightened him. Yeah. Uh, John said before it started. Now Yoko is going to do her thing all over you, uh, and she'd been, I guess. Part of it, she'd been inside a bag howling uh, during some of John's numbers. She said, "Like you do, like <laughs> like you do during during a sh- It is it is very much <clears throat> my take on Yoko is this. Not that it, not that anybody's waiting for it, but as an artist, she was very much she was very a very influential conceptual artist. And you have to understand that at that time there was the whole Fluxus movement and other similar movements, and it was the whole life is art and art is life. So thus, you would do a painting that had a single word on it that said smile, or you would have, as they did, they'd have a plinth with a telephone sitting on top of it and a sign that said, if the phone rings, answer it. That was the kind of stuff that was that was art. Um, happenings were, were a really big thing. So she was right online with that, and she, I think, had credibility there. She loses me <clears throat> with the... The, conceptual vocalizing the, the caterwauling like I just it, uh, it's not even remotely pleasurable to listen to it's what it is it's again it's like conceptual singing in a sense she's but it's in the in the genre of Beatle John's music so let's say yeah it wasn't acceptable to so many people because it was just like what is that it, it's not what we're used to you know and 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 you know it it, it is it can be grating but again I'll, I'll qualify it by saying uh her early 70s work melodic songwriting and interesting lyrics you know I, 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 I'll just take the other side of that though So and, and I do I have those albums Approximately Infinite Universe and uh, uh, Feeling the Space it's all the New York session guys playing on there top New York now I think that if I went in with a bunch of top New York session guys and sang a bunch of cover You'd tunes, have a classic. I don't know that I'd have a classic, but I think it would be put outable. With like, you I mean you're playing with the cream of the cream? Um, but am I being too harsh on? It's your. You are entitled to your opinions. <laughs> no, no. I mean, amazing woman. Uh, you know, ahead of her time as a feminist, a strong woman, which is one of the reasons she got so much pushback from a lot of people. Uh, I acknowledge all of that, but I just, I think she was a, maybe a great artist, but not such a great yeah. singer, <laughs> if I may. <laughs> 
Um, so she does that. Uh, it's a funny quote. Uh, Alan White says, I had my monitors on stage and I thought the monitors were feeding back. Oh. <laughs> and Klaus said, no, it's Yoko. Look. Yeah. And he pointed at her and she was singing. Um, yeah, he's nervously looking for the sound technician. And then Klaus says, we never rehearsed for Yoko. We had no idea what was going to come out of her throat. Not the faintest idea. John just said, oh, play this Bo Diddley riff. Just on E yeah, and an cl- open tuning and you can play along. Yeah, Clapton's playing slide. It's just like a three chord bluesy <laughs> thing, right? Uh, but that said, uh, Tim, and you're, you know, uh, Yoko was screaming these things. This is Klaus Vorman talking. And the shivers went right down my back. I felt so much for Yoko. I thought, what a great thing to do to go out there and just do this. I couldn't believe it. I really warmed towards her so much. I was standing behind her. I saw her from the back. She was screaming like mad. Everybody can hear it on the record. She's really just screaming. It was incredible. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's brave. I, you know, you could say that for sure. Yeah. Yep. Uh, and then that goes into John John, Let's Hope for Peace. Uh, I describe it in my notes as a torturous 12 minutes and 42 seconds of Yoko caterwauling over an improvised tune and then feedback. Yeah, it's mostly feedback, but it, my, th- uh, you know, my thing about the, the sound of it, it like um, the feedback that you hear is John's Epiphone Casino against a trainer amp. But those, I have an Epiphone Casino at home and, and they are lousy for feedback because they don't make a musical, like a Hendrix, like, like where you can, it's sort of a, like, I call it like, it's like liquid lava, the tone. <laughs> it's a, it can be beautiful, right? But when an Epiphone Casino feeds back, it's just like, it's not, it's painful. And that's so what this is. It's painful because the, because of the. The, the guitar choice, I think. Well, and if you're not into what Yoko's doing, uh, granted, but but it, it's it's not a nice feedback. I, I've used mine on a few gigs, and I now just I just use it for recording because it it's it's this squall that comes out of that guitar. If if you have it too hot, if you drive it with pe- guitar pedals or whatever, it's not a musical sound. So you've got Yoko doing your thing and that feedback. I, I put it on yesterday at my house to, to sort of prepare for today. And, and at one point, my dog, like her, her ears flapped up when that, and it was, it was the feedback coming through the speakers from John's Epiphone. It's like, she looked like, like I think she went down to the basement. <laughs> Yoko didn't make her go to the basement. It was John's it was guitar. John's feedback. Yeah. Uh, now, it, it, it was, again, I talked about performance art, and I thought, this was really this was really cool uh torturous song and i'm sure the, you know the audience it's probably it's one in the morning at this point everybody's half stoned or drunk out of yeah, their brains tired. uh and then you're this is you'd be very puzzled to say the this least. is the encore this is the encore <laughs> this is all right folks we'll do one more before we send you on your way you know what a great I, audience in the film it, it, it's pretty funny like you see, like John's, his guitar is just leaning against the amp, and he, he walks over towards uh, Klaus and Alan and, and Eric, and they're all just standing in a huddle. But Yoko's still doing her thing, like she's just out there. Well, John says, this is his recollection. I said, look, at the end of the show, when she's finished doing whatever she's doing, just lean your guitars on the amps and let it keep howling, and we can get off like that. Because you can't very well go jing like the Beatles, and bow at the end <laughs> yeah. of screaming and 50 like, watts of feedback. Like with this chord. Like, uh, you can't do the, the famous Beatles six chord, like... 
yeah. after that number, right? <laughs> and everybody takes a bow. Uh, so we all left our amps on, uh, and we all had a smoke on the stage. Uh, and then when, when they when they stopped, the whole crowd was chanting, give peace a chance. We didn't know what the reaction would be. Something magical happened that night, and it affected Eric and Klaus and Alan. They really got turned on by that night's experience. So that, of course, turned us on even more. And what he did was they had the, the guitars are there, there's the feedback, and Mal Evans comes out and goes around and turns the amps off. So... Which kind of neat performance art. Yeah, except they don't have that in the movie. I was looking for Mal. Yeah. I knew that I'd read that that happened, but they don't have that. They... Which would have been a nice end to the movie. Yeah. You'd have thought. Come on. You'd have thought. <laughs> D.A. Penbacher, what does he know? Eh? <laughs> uh, so uh, post-show, just some, some stuff. Um, so Lennon does, he, he does the gig for free. Uh, and he wanted the recording rights, so they put the album out, and D.A. Pennebacher shows up there. Uh, you, The film did come out. You can find it on YouTube. You can find everything on YouTube now. It's called um, Sweet Toronto, or sometimes called Sweet Toronto Peace Festival. Uh, he also, by the way, Pennebacher, if you recognize his name, he did the famous Dylan Doc, Don't Look Back. Yeah. Um, the video also features, if you see it online, you see Jerry Lee, uh, you see uh, Little Richard Bo Diddley. The actual concert lasts 12 hours and includes Alice Cooper, Chicago. Um, but the, the documentary focuses mainly on the final hours of the concert. So that's the Lennon. Uh, as for the studio, Lennon takes uh, the audio. Lennon takes him back to the studio in England, takes the tapes with him back to personally, takes them back. Um, and they go into Studio 3 a few days later, September 25th. And he mixes the eight-track tapes from the festival performance, producing a stereo master tape. Uh, and funny, uh, he works on the Stereo Master, and that same night, they start work on Cold Turkey in the studio. Right. Uh, so he goes right from one to the other. Uh, went back and remixed um, Don't Worry, Kayoko. I guess he wasn't happy with the original yeah, 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 mix yeah, of it. You'd, you'd want to get that one right. Uh, comes out on vinyl on the 12th of December, 1969. And uh, also the 1970 calendar included in initial pressings with the... Um, it was either stapled wire spiral or plastic comb bindings. If you got one of the one of the early ones, the album did not chart in the UK, uh, so it stiffed completely there. It reached number ten in the US and was certified gold in Canada. It peaked at sixteen on the RPM chart. I was kind of surprised. I thought it would have been higher in Canada. Yeah, you think, especially being in Toronto. Yeah. Uh, as per chartmasters.org, the album with global physical sales of 1.65 million. Uh, and just for context, uh, sometime in New York City, global physical sales of 980K. So this is much better than that one. Mind Games sold just over 2 million. So it's in the in the ballpark. It's a bit more accessible, Mind Games, though, than the other yeah. albums we're talking about. But well, I mean, I would Overall. say 1.65 million for this album is pretty damn good, I would yeah. say. You know, I'd take it. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> uh, and Lennon has, this is uh, Lennon's recollection. We tried to put it out on Capitol, and Capitol didn't want to put it out. They said, this is garbage, and we're not going to put it out with her screaming on one side and you doing this sort of live stuff. And they just refused to put it out. But we finally persuaded them that, you know, people might buy this. Of course, it went gold the next day. But then the funny thing was, and this is a side story, and I'm quoting John Lennon here, Klein had got a deal 
uh, on that record that it was a John and Yoko Plastic Ono record, not a Beatles record, so we could get a higher royalty because the Beatles royalties were so low and they'd been locked in in 63. And Capital said, sure, you can have it, you know? Nobody's going to buy that crap. They just threw it away and gave it us. And it came out and it was fairly successful and it went gold. I don't know what chart position, but I've got a gold record somewhere that says. And four years later, we go to collect the royalties and you know what they say? This is a Beatles record. So Capital, have it in my file under Beatle Records. Isn't that incredible? Yeah. Ripped him off. Yeah. The business of music. <laughs> <laughs> Ouch. Uh, cover art. Uh, designed by John Kosh, who at the time was Apple's artistic director. Uh, he was a young kid in his, early in his career at this point. Went on to become a big major cover designer. He did, uh, did the cover for Abbey Road and Let It Be. Um, and he did the album art for Instant Karma, Cold Turkey, or the, the single art. Uh, and then he moved to L.A. and he did covers for Aerosmith, 10,000 Maniacs, Jimmy Buffett, The Eagles. He did the Hotel California cover. Yep, big guy. Designed the logo and album covers for ELO uh, and won a Grammy for best cover for Linda Ronstadt's Simple Dreams album. Well, that's what happens when you do something for the, the Beatles. It's on your resume. Then you, you know, you, your first call after that, I guess. Yeah. Um, so get your, I'd like to get your opinion on this as, as a fellow Beatlehead. In the end, what I find interesting are the conflicting storylines of, because the mythology around this is that going and doing this show made Lennon realize that he was done with the Beatles. So the, I have a quote from him from 1970. He says, we were in Apple and I knew before I went to Toronto, I told Alan Klein I was leaving. I told Eric Clapton and Klaus that I was leaving and I'd like to play to probably use them as a group. I hadn't decided how to do it, to have a permanent new group or what. And then later I thought, fuck it, I'm not going to get stuck in with another set of people, whoever they are. So I announced it to myself and to the people around me on the way to Toronto the few days before. On the plane, Alan came with me and I told him, it's over. And that's from Lennon Remembers, the uh, the collection of interviews that he did with uh, Jan Wenner. But yet, we have this recording that was made at the Apple meeting only four days earlier when Lennon, who's leading the meeting, talks about a future album, how they'll share songwriting credits, and hey, maybe we'll even do a Christmas single. Yeah, you never know, because uh, they're jostling over who's going to take control of the band Paul wanted you know his in-laws but whatever Linda's you know you know the Eastmans and there's yeah. all that jostling and maybe maybe they they had a, a little argument you know that's changed the the climate at that time it's weird though that you, like you have a meeting on it's documented meeting where yep you know we're gonna do this we're gonna do a single at Christmas maybe and we're gonna do some albums and you know we'll each have four cuts or whatever and then days later he his recollection is he's on the plane and says nah I'm done but you're talking about artists <laughs> yeah like it could have been the, the wind was uh, howling a certain easterly direction that day and and uh, you know, change. You know, people are whimsical when they're, especially when they're artistic. I think. You I, know? I think as much as anything, too, it tells you, yeah, you're. They were, by his own admission, they were pretty messed up on drugs too. Yeah. Uh, I don't know how clearly they were thinking. 
Maybe um, he had a yeah, he had a bad day and, and just an outburst. Yeah, and that was it. I'm I'm done. But you know, you, you can look back on it all. And it, my my thinking is is that uh, you know they never made any shitty records. Maybe they would have like because they were they were sort of growing older and growing apart. And maybe they would have put out some horrible records. Yeah. But they it all in a way it dovetailed perfectly like in its own way. You know, they didn't put out any. You know, double albums that you couldn't <laughs> listen to, or whatever. So, what are your final thoughts on this record? We've been sort of poking at it for the last hour and a half, or whatever. What are your What is your it's, takeaway from it? It's, a, it's more than something that I go back to to listen to. <clears throat> Excuse me, all the time. It's more of a. It's like a document of a time. That's how I I see this record. It's like a total like document of where Lennon was at, and and it's in our city. Which is cool, and it, and the venue's still there, as you mentioned, and <clears throat> just the whole circumstances around it. It's it's uh, the throw and go element of the show, and the fact that you know he was going to leave the Beatles when he went back to England. He, it was already a, he was laying it out, and of course Alan Klein was saying, Don't, "You can't say anything yet, though," you know. And McCartney beat him to it, which pissed him off royally. But that's another story. But but I I just think it's <clears throat> it's just it's a time capsule. It's a it just nails us at this moment in time, uh, you know, the end of the '60s, and uh, and and he saw an opportunity to go in a different direction. He he, he probably enjoyed, even though he was fearful and throwing up before he went on it. I think it was a release for him, like a the, that he was he could he could do something else, yeah, on his own, yeah. And and there's some joy in the playing that you can hear totally. Too. No, they they're, in, they're definitely. When the, when they're firing on all cylinders, when when the, when everything's working, like your blues, for instance, as we discussed, like yeah, it, it really works. And I think that that's when Lennon just probably thought, I don't have to just be a Beatle; I can do other stuff. Yeah, you know. Yeah, it must have been really liberating for him. Exactly. To to stand yeah. up there on stage with, I mean, he never would have. When was the last time he would have played with, you know, a, a concert with anybody other than his his three regular bandmates? Well, 66, and then the rooftop, and that was it. Well, yeah. the rooftop had already happened, of course. But Excellent. Yeah. Well, it's been a pleasure, as always. Yes, thank you. Thanks for having me. And just a reminder, again, if you want to check out Tim live, uh, he's going to be playing with Burton Cummings extensively all across Canada this summer. And if you want to check him out locally, if you're in the Toronto area or you anticipate visiting the Toronto area over the summer, uh, then to see where he's going to be appearing, check out his Instagram feed, which is at Tim Bovacondi. That is at and then Tim, T-I-M, Bovacondi, B-O-V-A-C-O-N-T-I. And do keep your eyes peeled, uh, eyes and ears peeled, I guess, for a new album of solo material that Tim will have out later in 2023. That album will be called Again. Well, if you've enjoyed this episode or any of the episodes for that matter, please do consider making a donation to support the ongoing production of this uh, little podcast. Any little amount helps. You can offer your support if you visit the website and click on the Support the Walrus button. I know most people don't pay for the podcast they listen to. I don't pay for all of the ones that I listen to either. But if you do enjoy this one and you'd like to see it continue, then please consider making a donation if you can afford it. 
please consider it. You can follow the podcast on the usual socials. On Twitter and Instagram, I can be found at the handle Romanuk Paul. On Facebook, do a search for the Walrus Was Paul podcast page. And if you'd like to get in touch, you can email me at the.romicast at gmail.com. That is the.romicast at gmail.com. And of course, positive reviews and shares on your social channels. Always a big help out. Next time, Canadian indie music icon, a founding member of the band Lowest of the Low, and for many years now, a successful solo artist with his own band, Stephen Stanley, will stop by for an episode with a bit of a twist. He'll be talking about not an album, but his favorite Beatles guitar moments. The reason I play guitar is the Beatles. And it's been this lifelong demystification of how all those those three musicians work it all together. And every band I've been in references that over and over again. That is Stephen Stanley, and he'll be my guest on the next episode of the Walrus Was Paul podcast. Do keep an eye out for that. Uh, just a bit of time left for uh, what have I been listening to lately? Uh, the recent record store day caught me in a bit of a nostalgic mood, and I picked up a vinyl copy of the 1981 album Tom Tom Club. Uh, a sentimental favorite of mine for sure because I used to play it on a radio show that I did on CKLN Radio in Toronto when I was a first-year broadcasting student at Ryerson University about a a million years ago. (laughs) But that was a big album then, so it brought back some nice memories. Tom Tom Club, just to refresh your memory or to enlighten you if you weren't aware, was a side project put together by Talking Heads members Chris France and Tina Weymouth. Uh, It is a really fun record. Uh, as fun as I remember it being. I hadn't listened to it for years. It features some funk, soul, reggae, all bundled up together in the fantastic single Genius of Love. That's the single off the album or one of the singles. That single, you would know it immediately. It has been sampled literally hundreds of times by other artists so go back and give the original a listen it's the best of all and it's really good fun that's my recommendation this week tom tom club so have a look for that don't forget if you enjoy the podcast once again i remind you that a donation is always appreciated and needed quite honestly costs a bit to keep this thing up in the uh, up in the interweb with hosting sites and what little bit i spend on advertising uh, click on the player or go to the website romicast.com and click on the support the walrus button if you'd like to help out and positive reviews and shares on your social channels also a big help i'm paul romanuk pleasure as always so long for now do you ever get tired of being beatles I'd too play a guitar.